I remember this story very well as I was serving previous church context. I was in Colorado Springs. I was an associate pastor. It was getting close to Christmas time, so this is just a matter of a few years ago. Uh, right before I started interviewing with First Covenant, actually. And uh, it, the service had just ended. It was a snowy morning in Colorado Springs. Beautiful outside with fresh snow. Thick snow for Colorado. And I was sitting down with the senior pastor, going to check in on a couple things. Very few people left in the building. And a gentleman walks in. He had just driven down from Denver from the airport. He came from New York City, but he had really come from the other side of the world. And he, had visited, he was visiting a church in New York City, our little church in Colorado Springs. We were about 100 people. And then he was going to go to Los Angeles and back to the other side of the world where he came from. And he had a word from the Lord for those three churches. Now, I'm ready for a word from the Lord. I've discovered in life I've received words from the Lord. And I'm happy to receive a word from the Lord. And so in this case, he comes in and he sits down and he tells us, here's the word. Jesus is back. We don't know where he is. And there's a test. So that was the word from the Lord we received from him. The test, as it turns out, I still have it in my office, is to read the Bible in 91 days. I don't know why that was the number. 91 was what it was. I've since read the Bible multiple times since then, but not in 91 days. That's pretty rapid if you try and read the Bible in 91 days. But I am open to a word from the Lord. I just don't think this was a word from the Lord in this case. And and there's something interesting I've discovered that I I have words for now that I didn't have words for back then. There's an ethics book, I've mentioned it before to some of you, uh, by an Anglican priest named Sam Wells. It's called Improvisation, where he talks about that there are rules in in, uh, improvisational theater that apply really well to Christian ethics. It's a fascinating book. It's, it's, he does really good stuff with it. And I'm not an actor, but if you know anything about improvisational theater, and I've learned a little bit over the years, the, the main principle is yes and, right? Somebody gives you something and then you've got to take it and, and build on it. You don't want to go out in left field and, and make things as crazy as possible. You want to build off of what they've given you. But what stands behind that, a number of principles stand behind that. And one of them that's really important that we're going to encounter today that I encountered in this particular case with this man coming into my office uh, is the principle of accepting or blocking what's being given to you. That doesn't mean you have to agree with it, but it means you have to receive it and say, now I'm going to do something with it rather than just saying, no, no, get away. That's the option. Young man comes into my office, has a word from the Lord. I'm going to be ready to receive a word from the Lord, but I'm going to have to weigh it out first. I'm going to accept what he gives me. I'm not just going to say, I don't want to hear it. And that's the difference. That's accepting and blocking. And that's in play today as we look at John the Baptist. We're going to look at Matthew 3. We're going to look at verses 13 through 17 if you're following along. And I wish you would. Now, the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, John the Baptist. He's going to be in play a little bit. We're obviously looking at Jesus, though, really is the main focus of that. Next week, we're going to pick up in John, where Jesus is called the Lamb of God, and where you have some of the disciples being called. But this week, we're looking at Jesus' baptism and the interaction that happens with John the Baptist, and that he has a chance to now accept or block something that's being offered by God. And so as we look at this, uh, recognizing God's work is really what's at play behind this. Are we going to recognize, are we going to accept, are we going to move forward with it? In, in Matthew three thirteen through 17, we read, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? 
Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, now can I pause for a moment? This is God the Father's very words being spoken. Isn't that remarkable that we get that? I mean, this is the word of God, yes, that we're holding. But these are the words from God spoken to the Son. Isn't that amazing? I read this this week, and I tinker with the original Greek. I'm not that good at it. I just tinker with it. I read it in the original Greek this week, and I slowed down as I read, realizing what I'm reading. And we're a couple languages removed here, but even so, that's amazing, isn't it? The word of the Lord right here. A voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. That's the word of the Lord right there. John comes preaching, baptizing. We know him as the baptizer, John the Baptist. And he looks different. Even in his day, he looks different. He'd look like a total nut now dressed the way he's dressed. But he looked different even in his world. Wearing the camel shirt, which by the way was actually not a bad option for desert living. If it's really cold at night in the desert, that thing would keep you very warm. If extreme weathers came, it keeps the water off if rain comes, as it turns out. He's eating locusts and honey. Ton of protein in locusts. Not a bad thing to eat. I don't know if you've had cricket anything, but it's pretty good. Uh, So he's not got a totally unbalanced diet. He's actually doing pretty well for himself. Just looks different. Operating different in his culture. He preaches forcefully. We heard some of the preaching this morning. You brood of vipers, he tells the ruling elite and their people that come. I mean, that's powerful stuff. It takes a lot to get away with that kind of preaching, I got to tell you. And he comes and he says, I've got good news, but it could be bad news. It's good news, though, if you'll take it. It's good news if you'll accept it. That's what he's offering. He's bringing this baptism of repentance and cleansing. And he says, I'm baptizing with water, but there's one coming, the one I'm pointing to, who's going to come and he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, fire, as we can continue on in the text, does not just reiterate the Holy Spirit. It might be easy to assume that, thinking that the fire is going to come in Pentecost, but it seems to indicate judgment, which can still be good news. Let's just point that out, depending on what side of judgment you're on. Because he says the winnowing fork is here. He's going to throw the wheat up in the air. The chaff is going to blow away. And we would recognize that as those who haven't received what Jesus is bringing. That's the chaff that's going to blow away. Those who aren't accepting what God is offering. And the wheat's going to fall back down. Those are going to be the ones who receive the good news. They've already received it. They're going to live it out. The Holy Spirit's there for those. So fire and that judgment is actually not bad if you've taken in what Jesus has to offer, that's the end of evil. That's a good thing. But if you haven't uh, said yes to Jesus, then that is bad news. It turns out not good. John says, I'm bringing you good news. And John baptizes this baptism of repentance and cleansing. Now, in his day, there were people who did ritual washings. You have some in the text, Pharisees, they would do ritual washings on a regular basis. 
for, for some kind of cleansing or that kind of thing. You'd have breakaway groups that we don't read about in the New Testament, but we know about them. Uh, the Essenes, who a lot of scholars used to think John the Baptist was an Essene. He, scholarship has, has veered away from that assumption that he doesn't fit the bill. But this group of breakaway people waiting for the Messiah in the Jewish world who formed their own commune, basically out in the desert near the Dead Sea. I've stood there. I've looked at the ritual washing basins that they have. So people would do this, but John's giving a one-time baptism. And John's giving a one-time baptism for cleansing and repentance. And look at who he's preaching it to, the inside crowd, the people who should know and who should be watching for the Messiah's coming. And indeed, it seems like they're looking for something, but they don't think John's on the right track. John seems to anticipate or at least give us an insight into what he must have been hearing when he calls them a brood of vipers, when he says, who told you to flee? Who said, you know, that you can just claim Abraham as your father? I mean, think it through. He's saying, you guys, the ones who are following the law like crazy and then following the law and making up other laws so you can follow the law, you guys are the ones who need cleansing and repentance. That's bold and audacious, isn't it? And you can imagine the response why he has to make his little apology that he makes. They could easily come back and say, well, yeah, we do have Abraham as our father. We know that our ancestors, just like yours, John, were disobedient. They went into exile, but we learned our lesson and now we're following the law. We're on the right track. We know when the Messiah is going to come and how it's going to work out. And yet you have the audacity, John, to tell us to be clean, to repent. No, we're on the right track. I mean, you can just imagine how this would play out. That's the, that's the baptism that John is bringing. And then to top it off, John has this interesting dilemma because Jesus comes. And John says, no, you should be baptizing me. But Jesus says, no, this is how it's supposed to go. He has a moment, right, where he can accept it or block. He starts with blocking. No, this isn't how it's supposed to go. I read the text. I know the text. I'm the prophet. This isn't how it's supposed to go. Jesus says, no, this is. So he's got a choice on his hands to accept or to block. Now, this is an important message, I think, for us in the evangelical world to hear when we talk about accepting and blocking because one of the unfortunate traits that has become a a problem for evangelicals is we're really good at saying what we're against and not what we're for. We block. We tend to block more than we accept. That doesn't mean we're changing our beliefs this morning. I'm not suggesting that by any means, but it does mean to say that we can be doing all the right things on the right track and yet be blocking God's work in our lives. That's what I mean to say. John's doing, he's faithful. He's doing exactly what he's supposed to be doing, but he he has this moment where something new comes in order for him to be faithful, and he's got a choice. And so we need to uh, be able to recognize God at work. And I just want to make a couple points about this, and the first is that we need to accept the fact that God is at work right now in our midst, in our lives, in our church, in the churches around us. John, he's the son of a prophet, or son of a priest, excuse me. He is a prophet, and, and he gets to. If, if you read the Old Testament and you see when kings were anointed, messiahs, there was a prophet typically that was involved in that. John gets to be the one to anoint the king of all creation, to baptize him. He gets that. And there's this sort of interesting almost authority shift, if you will, for a moment that occurs when we read about the interaction between John and Jesus. John is saying, no, I should be baptized by you. Jesus says, guess what? To fulfill all righteousness, you need to baptize me. 
He really hands over this power for a moment. As he's done in the incarnation in general, he hands over the power and he says, look, John, it's your move. What are you going to do? You're the one who's supposed to anoint me now. We need to accept that God is at work. Now, I'll have a transparent pastor moment with you. Uh, When I came to be your pastor three and a half years ago, um, I was nervous. Uh, We've talked about this before. Um, This is the church I grew up in. I thought this is an interesting move. I didn't expect God to do that. I don't think, given what the uh, conversation I had with the search committee, you all expected that either. It was a surprise to all of us. But it's worked out very well. And, And after a lot of prayer and a lot of consideration, we came here and we've been very happy. And, but, but for the first six months that I was here, I'm a strategically minded person. And so I saw things through the lens of strategy. And, and you also, I had this issue because I was a, had been a youth pastor and then I'd been an associate pastor and I'd never been in a senior pastor role. This was new territory for me. And sometimes you can kind of think you know what you're doing and you really don't know what you're doing. Uh, you think, I've watched all this play out in other churches. I know what should be done in this situation, right? You get a little pride, we might call it. And so I had a little bit of that operating, I realized. And I was strategically minded, seeing problems that needed to be fixed. That's what I saw for six months. And I went to our pastor's conference, the midwinter conference in Chicago that year. And I was really lost in worship at one point with, I was just really lost in it. It was great. It was a wonderful experience. And God spoke in that moment and said, just enjoy the people I've called you to serve. Don't try to fix everything. Enjoy them. And it it changed. I don't do that perfectly but I'm still strategically minded and that's not bad. It wasn't unfaithful to be that way, but I wasn't doing the fullness of my job. And it tra- began to transition at that point. See, we can, we can be faithful in doing a lot of the right things and yet still be blocking God's work if we're not careful. Just like John the Baptist is faithful. He can block for a moment. God, Jesus says, no, no, this is the way it's going to go. And so what would prevent us from recognizing God's work? What stops us? What makes us want to block? You have the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're the experts of the law in the case of the Pharisees. In the case of the Sadducees, they run the rights of the temple. They control that. What stops them? They're saying, we have Abraham as our father. And what a crazy statement that John makes. Yeah, God can create those out of the stones. You can't just claim that as your faith. We can easily block because of reasons like that. And we live, I've been dwelling on this recently, we live in a culture that while the Christianish nature of our culture is fraying at the edges very quickly, we still affirm very deeply Christian values, good things in our culture. That we should have Christian values, that we, we want our youth to have Christian values, that we want our leaders to have Christian values. But let me tell you a story that, that will help uh, maybe illustrate where we can go wrong in, in that and be blocking God's work in us. I was, I was on a, a board for an organization a number of years ago. I was talking to a farmer from Kansas who was on that board with me. And it was springtime. The winter wheat was coming up. It was getting close to harvest, but there was a frost coming in that weekend. He was away from the field. I said, what happens if your winter wheat freezes when the frost comes? Now, he was Swedish by background. I'm Swedish by background. That plays into the story. He said, well, if it freezes this late in the season, you get what my Norwegian neighbor calls Swedish wheat. It looks great on the outside, but there's nothing in the head. (laughs) I didn't get it, but that's what he told me. 
We live in a culture that espouses Christian values. That's a good thing. But sometimes we have a Swedish wheat mentality if we're not careful that it looks good on the outside, but there's nothing on the inside. We're playing the part like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It looks right. We're being faithful even like John the Baptist, but we're still blocking God's work in certain areas of our lives sometimes. If we're not careful. Don't hear me say Christian values are bad. They're good. But we need Christ inside of there. That's what affects change in us. Why would we block versus accept? I'd go back to that author I mentioned, Samuel Wells. He says we block because we think things are impossible. God, you can't do that. We think things are improper. God, that's not the way it's done. Or they're dangerous. No way, God. I'm not doing that. Right? It messes with our contentment. It brings fear. It messes with our safety. We don't want to mess with those things too deeply sometimes. Jesus, don't mess with certain areas of my life. I'm being faithful to you. You don't need to get into that area. And we can easily do that. So accept that God is at work around us. We need to know that God is going to surprise us. God will surprise us. I think it was great that we had testimony that we feel the call to uh, bring in a pastor of student ministries, and God seems to be surprising us with how that may play out. I think that's a good thing. We're still being faithful. We just might be called in a different direction or a different way. God's going to surprise us. The very fact that Jesus was baptized is a surprise, isn't it? You look at the text and, and, and you figure out, try and name out the different reasons Jesus was baptized. I go over this in confirmation every year, and each year I learn something new about why this would even matter. Scholars point out all kinds of reasons. They point out things like it affirms John's ministry. That's a good but maybe underscored point, but it's important that John did what he was supposed to do. He was faithful. It affirms that. You can see that the, the, the baptism of Jesus is testified in all four of the Gospels in one way or another, whether clearly or, or a little less uh, overtly in some cases. It shows that Jesus was the Messiah when he's baptized. John, the book of John probably clears, shows that the most clearly, but they all do in one way or another. Because here you have him anointed by a prophet. Here you have him clearly blessed by God the Father and God the Holy Spirit as well in his work. It shows that he's the one who was to come, the anointed one. When we look at the baptism of Jesus, it it shows, it inaugurates his ministry. It kicks it off, begins it. But also what he's also doing in in kicking off the ministry is he's showing what he's going to do the entire time, which is that he identifies with humanity, with you and me. He identifies with all who would live and and would need to live because Jesus chooses the baptism. He doesn't need to get baptized. The baptism of John is for cleansing and repentance. Jesus didn't need to be cleaned from anything. He didn't need to repent. He didn't sin ever. Nor would he sin in the future. He chose to identify with you and me and become human. In fact, that's what the very incarnation is. He talks about this is to fulfill all righteousness. What the prophets have been talking about, what they've been foretelling, what they've been telling us would happen, the work of redemption that God's going to do through Jesus Christ, now that's being done. The incarnation itself is God coming in a human body, taking on the sin that was on us, but now taking it on himself. He's illustrating that very clearly and doing that right away in the baptism of Jesus. Just like we read in in 2 Corinthians 5, right? He, He became sin who knew no sin, that we might become his righteousness. And finally, it serves that he's an example He's more than that. 
The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, even the baptism itself, affects more than that. But it's an example of the promise that's going to come. John's baptism, for those in his day, was a call to commitment to what God would do. Jesus is committed to that. And even John himself highlights the promise that's going to come. And I would suggest to you, and this is the main point I'd leave with you this morning, is that saying yes to God's work, as we see it in Jesus Christ, saying yes to God's work means sharing in God's promises. So when John says those words that that could be good news or bad news in verses 11 and 12, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but one after me, one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. You see, if we've chosen the one who identified with us and the redemption that comes through Jesus Christ, and that's good news. That's really good news that we have the Holy Spirit, that we have God's very presence with us now. And the promise that we see in Jesus Christ is who we're supposed to be. What it looks like to be a kingdom person. He illustrates that over and over. And we see the hope that is to come as Jesus eradicates evil and sin and death and decay. That's what we live into. It's an imperfect world we live in now, but we become kingdom people living by the power of the Holy Spirit, living into that reality even now. But we can easily block that if we're resistant to areas where God could work in our lives to renovate our lives and our heart, looking the part, but not really allowing Jesus to come in. I was struck recently, I've been reading a book by an apologist named Abdu Murray, and he, he makes the main point of his book that the truth has a cost. It does. And this is what blocks a lot of people from faith. That they start to recognize a lot of things about Jesus, for instance, that are very good, that matter. But they also recognize that what Jesus calls us to, if Jesus really gets in there, it could change everything. There's a cost. I believe what you get out of it is far better and outweighs the cost by a long shot. The blessing and the promise that comes from God through Jesus. But there's a cost. John, the John the Baptist pays a price if you keep reading on. He has his moments of doubt, but he realizes the surprise that God is bringing him in his faithfulness is that this is way beyond his expectations in a good sense. Boy, what Jesus is doing is way beyond, and what Jesus will do is way beyond, and yet he literally loses his head because of his faithfulness. He pays a price. The early uh, apostles paid a price living into these promises. A lot of them paid with their lives. I have a friend uh, from around the world, halfway around the world, who paid a price. He came to Christ at 16. Dad kicked him out of the house. No Christian's going to live in my house. And even for some of us, I've had people come and talk to me in in my office here and other offices, and they come and they say, you know, I'm sensing that I need to do something here. I'm sensing a a God talking to me and calling me to something more. But if if I give in, I lose my social network. I lose my friends. I have to make different choices about what I read, about what I watch, about what I do, about my job. There's a cost, but the promise that we receive, the power of the Holy Spirit on us, Jesus Christ's redemption in us, 
that outweighs any of those costs. John has the opportunity to block or accept. We have the same exact opportunity. And we know more of the story. And we have more of the story. We have the full redemption of Jesus Christ available to us. Our job as faithful people of Christ is not to block the work that God is doing, but to accept it, to let Jesus get into every part of us. Let's pray. God, we pray that your spirit would work in us this morning. For those of us that sit here resistant to any work that your son Jesus would bring into our lives because it would change too much, take away our concerns about the, the impossibility of that, the fears of safety, the fears of our contentment that's not really real contentment. God, for those of us that say, Jesus, you can have everything but, and we don't even realize it. Come right into that part of our lives. Renovate. Move everything around. Make that your home in our lives. For those of us that are content walking the way we're walking, but realizing that maybe you're calling us to something more, God, whether it be service or whether it be a change in what the surroundings of our world or whatever it might be. God, give us the strength through the power of your spirit to do that. Empower us to be kingdom people as you've called us to be. Empower us to live not just into the example of your son, Jesus Christ, but to be redeemed through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this all in your name. Amen.